1: You're listening to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy. It's not an easy time to be a central banker. Attention is shifting towards the array of risks that threaten Britain and the world with new crises. There are obvious and immediate dangers of trade wars and a no-deal Brexit, as well as a rising tide of authoritarianism and populist insurgencies against elites, often with central bankers in the firing line. Over all this looms the existential question of climate change and its economic and human consequences. So this week we're asking, how do central banks deal with a riskier world? My guest is Mark Carney... Governor of the Bank of England. He started his career as a banker, going on to head the Bank of Canada and serve seven years as the chairman of the Financial Stability Board. He's been in post here in London in Threadneedle Street since 2013, but his tenure is coming to an end next year. He's been in the news this week as a possible candidate to replace Christine Lagarde as head of the International Monetary Fund. But he's with us today in his capacity as Governor of the Bank of England. Mark Carney, welcome to The Economist
0: Asks. I have a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Anne.
1: Combating climate change has often been framed as a kind of threat to the economy. In opposition to green mm. reform, sometimes framed as overregulation or, or potential job losses an expense. But are we now at a moment where the failure to act is the bigger threat to growth?
0: From a medium term perspective, I I would agree with that uh, characterization. Now, that starts with the assumption, shall I put it that way, that uh, there will be some form of transition at some point to a lower carbon economy. Now, of course, the objective is a smooth transition to a net zero carbon economy to really stabilize temperatures. But uh, let's, let's take that there will be some form of transition. Now, if that transition comes late, it will be much more abrupt. It'll be much more destabilizing versus a steady, predictable, and credible transition that is to some extent underway, but gradually gathering momentum. And in that event, what we will see both in financial markets, investing, but in the real economy is transition adjustment being pulled forward and many more opportunities coming out instead of risks manifesting.
1: I suppose <laughs> layman's sort of version of, of, of that, and tell me if this is right or, or not, is that you want to change the balance of the debate away from thinking, well, what are the risks of acting on climate change to uh, adjust much more in the foreground, what are the risks of not doing so? That's that
0: that's that's exactly right. So one of the things that the Bank of England people may not know, but we we oversee the insurance industry in the UK. So fourth largest insurance industry in the world, the biggest reinsurance sector, um, uh, maybe most sophisticated. What they're very good is at managing actual physical manifestations, if you will, risks of crystallization of climate change risks today. But the bigger risks. And again, you're rightly putting it as a risk slash opportunity. The bigger risks are about the transition of the economy of where we are to where we need to get to in terms of a lower, ultimately, net zero economy. And that's the so-called transition risk. And so it's the companies that are thinking about, or whether they're financial or in the real economy, that are thinking about how resilient is their strategy to a lower carbon economy. Are they getting a bit ahead of this so that they're better prepared for that and they're starting to realize some of those opportunities? And that's what we're seeing to varying degrees in varying sectors.
1: What kind of climate shock would you say could do damage to the economy such that we might have to change a lot of our thinking, a lot of our modeling
0: in order to avoid that? The way we have framed this is that we are probably, I I can, I'll give you some examples in a moment, but let me give you the big picture first, which is climate change. uh, We've termed it as a a tragedy of the horizon. Famous concept, the tragedy of the commons. And I know you go to the countryside and you know the importance of (laughs) enclosure movement. So in other words, that, you know, when there's a common area or a common fishing area or grazing area, nobody owns it. It's not well managed. It gets overgrazed. Climate is a tragedy of the horizon because by the time that these major physical risks manifest from an everyday perspective, it's too late. It's too late to stabilize the climate at any realistic. That's at least the scientific advice. If we're waiting for a series of big climate shocks to adjust, uh, we could be, well be waiting uh, too long. And of course, that's the, you know, so who is supposed to take the longer term perspective and bring the future into the present? Well, you start with. That's, that's why we have governments. That's why you elect governments to take that uh, multi-year approach. What's happening in financial markets, though, is that investors and providers of capital, whether they're banks or asset managers, are starting to think about, they're seeing that horizon. I'll give you one number around that. $120 trillion of assets or balance sheet under management now wants climate disclosure from public companies signed up to something called the T C F D. And there's so they're seeing that horizon and they want information about at a minimum they want information about how companies are reacting to that.
1: So is fighting climate change something that big institutions that Bank of England, you you put yourself on the map with this. Then you've taken some criticism as a result. There's, there's, a, there's, get- <laughs>
0: there's a surprise, Anne. You do something as a uh, you know, public figure, as a central banker, and you get criticism. You always get criticism.
1: True. OK, but I'll stay on that if I may. And, and then the core of the criticism is that it is such a, a big topic. It would be in danger of sort of taking over the day job. So what would you say to those who say, well, you, know, you should be focusing more on on other aspects of economic and financial well-being and climate change is more properly the job of elected governments to look after.
0: A couple of things. First, I referenced earlier that we oversee the insurance sector. Walk down the street, talk to any uh, insurance CEO, risk manager in the property and casualty side or in the reinsurance side. This is the biggest risk that they're managing against. Now, they're fortunate in that they get to reprice their products on an annual basis they adjust the pricing they adjust the coverage but so we have to do this for our day job secondly when you look at the banking sector for which we're also the regulator 3 quarters of the banks 11 trillion of assets in London view this as a financial risk So we're the regulator. They view it as a financial risk. They're thinking about how to manage against it. And then the third thing is that we have a responsibility to think about the big risks to so-called financial stability. What can disrupt the functioning of the financial system? And these risks – and it's not just what I described in insurance. It's not just what I described for the banks, although those are important components. These risks of the transition of where we are today to where we're going – these are some of the biggest uh, financial risks in the medium term.
1: It doesn't sound like you feel you've overstepped.
0: Not at all. No. I think we're – think think you, Are you going to get and, even and, more outspoken? Well, I, uh, we're what's, – Because what's, this, this is the place to do it. What's <laughs> I very much appreciate the, the platform. What's happening I, I think is that the debate, discussion, the analysis and, and most importantly the allocation of capital is coming to where we have been – so if it was four, if we were four years ago, I, my $120 trillion figure would have been zero. If it had been then, it was which were the central banks, the regulators effectively, talking about these issues. It would have been relatively few. We are now uh, joined up with central banks and supervisors from China to, uh, to Europe to Latin America, and they cover 50% of global emissions. So that, the so-called network for greening the financial system. So this is mainstream.
1: How do you feel about your own carbon footprint? I think I uh, got a colleague who knows this area better than me to, to do some of the, the math here. And he pointed out that 12 business or worse first-class return tickets to your native Canada a year would represent something like 40 times the global average per person emissions. How much does that trouble you?
0: Well, it, look, I, I it does trouble The question is whether a couple fold. One is, let's take a macro point, which is carbon equity, whether it's your carbon footprint, anyone in this room's carbon footprint relative to the carbon footprint of somebody in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And this is a fundamental issue in terms of where the ultimate transition is going to go. Are we going to get to a position of global carbon equity? What needs to be done? So that ultimately gets it back to the need to collectively go to net zero. And then secondly, in terms of, yeah, personal, ma- I have a, I have a job. I don't take 12, uh- business class um, uh, or first class I don't take first class uh, tickets for that matter business class to Canada unless, unless you just floated that out there it uh, was an
1: example but you must fly a lot
0: of course I fly and you fly lot. business I fly, class. I fly so I your fly carbon on, yeah. footprint is bigger than if we my switched ca- you into my carbon economy. footprint yes of course yes my carbon footprint is bigger than certainly than many people and um, it's consistent with the job of being governor of the Bank of England in the G7 in the G20 it's consistent with the needs of those roles now look I may Some personal adjustments, and I'm not going to go into my personal life. Thank you very much. Let's keep it up into uh, the bigger picture. In terms of the Bank of England, we have committed, just committed in the last two weeks, we've already reduced uh, emissions at the Bank of England quite substantially. We've committed to another two-thirds reduction of the Bank of England carbon footprint, which would include my own and colleagues by two-thirds by 2050. We're, you know, in other words, on a path consistent. With one and a half degrees, which is the stretch goal of the Paris Accord,
1: and widening the definition of risk, or indeed factoring in risks that we perhaps were less aware of or just didn't exist in the same way uh, previously, is always tricky territory. It's tricky territory for everyone in in public life and the major institutions. So I wondered whether you felt that uh, that climate is a similarly thorny area for you as as Brexit's proved in the in the last few years since you've been in the job, for instance, as both of them. Are in a sense about risk, great risk, and what to do about it.
0: Well, I think on climate and on close on this, which is that you rightly said earlier that climate policy is the responsibility of government, and I think I've made that point as well. So ultimately, uh, which what regulations we have around certain industries, whether we have a carbon tax, you know, the various incentives around climate policy, including climate objectives which Parliament has passed, we need to make sure the financial system can um, deliver under those scenarios, whatever scenarios are adopted. And so that's the way we approach that risk. Now, of course, by doing that, we put the financial sector and they put themselves in a position where they can also seize the opportunities. And, you know, it's the flip side. Our job is is looking at risk, but having that strategic flexibility is crucial for seizing opportunities.
1: And you've been clear on the economic outcomes of, of Brexit. You think it's a very, I don't want to put words in your mouth and this of, of, of all things, but a very considerable risk, particularly in the event of no deal.
0: It is a considerable risk in the event of no deal. It matters how it's managed. So transition, this is a very flexible, resilient, strong economy, but a major change it's always better to have some period of transition. So we talked earlier about climate, which kind of the ultimate transition. It's better to start early and be steady. It's similar with whatever our future relationship is going to be with Europe. Now, can I make one point, a crucial point on Brexit, which is that, so as you say, this is our day job. Part of the Bank of England is worried all the time about financial stability. So when it comes to Brexit, the question we have to ask ourselves is not what might happen, but what could be the worst thing that does happen and are, you know, is the core of the UK financial system ready for that? And if it's ready for that, then it's ready for any upside that comes from that worst case.
1: I understand that. But I think the accusation that you are, uh, and this is not my words, it's you know, the other people sort of doom monger, uh, which occasionally does get attached to you you quite a cheery chap today, but you are, <laughs> you are sometimes <laughs> accused of Pride being him. Dr. Doom, aren't you, on this subject?
0: Uh, well, I, I mean, as I said as I said at the outset, people will – whatever position you take, there will be criticism and that's the you know, so part I suppose of the my job is entirely what, fair.
1: Once you try to say, well, I have to give you the worst case scenario, that tends yeah. to be the thing that makes the headlines.
0: Look, it's us doing our job. For example, I'll, I'll give you an example earlier, which is um, – and this is all entirely appropriate, but, this, but it's also the reality, which is that we have been preparing since we, well, we prepared well for the referendum. Uh, in, in hindsight, I think that's clear. And we have been preparing since the day after the referendum for the possibility of a hard Brexit, a so-called disorderly Brexit. And that means preparing our facilities, but it really means making sure the core of the financial system is ready. And parliament asked for that information okay? mm. so you have a couple of realities. one, we have to prepare the system that's our job. people would rightly round on us if the country chooses a certain path for Brexit It's yeah. the country's choice
1: and you haven't done and, the homework
0: and, and we haven't done the homework and then the financial system is part of, of the course, problem if, but if second got, thing and if I may is the reason that information is in the public domain is Parliament demanded it. Okay, Parliament demanded, uh, and I we are that, and accountable I think to what, people. I that's also what you so, said in,
1: a, in, a, in a, a quite tense select committee, but I suppose that…
0: Uh, there was nothing tense about it. It was a, Maybe not uh, on your side. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a, you know, <laughs> um, truth truth hurts sometimes, and uh, uh, you, if you ask for something, you, you get it and truth have to hurts. deal with the reality. So
1: that, that is the point, isn't it, that the, the truth hurts as you see it, was that you felt you really had to prepare worst-case scenario outcomes. They weren't possible outcomes they weren't predictions, but they were possibles. And yet, former Chancellor uh, Nigel Lawson and other critics, including your predecessor at the bank, just saying, well, you you got it wrong because you were far too pessimistic about recession hitting the UK immediately after Brexit. Are they wrong?
0: They are wrong. Yeah. Because? Well, first off, um, what we said in the run-up to uh, the referendum is that we expected that the pound would go down sharply that growth would slow and then inflation would rise above target. That's exactly what happened. Sterling's down 15% relative to pre-referendum levels. Inflation shot up well above target and stayed there for several years. And the economy... The growth and remained a econ- bit
1: more robust than you thought? Well,
0: in part because we provided massive stimulus. So you prepare, you get the system ready, and you're ready to respond. And that's what we've done in all those cir- circumstances. And then, you know what, people will take a view, but we're the ones who have to deliver.
1: Now, many people were particularly given this febrile politics at the moment. We're in the middle of a conservative uh, leadership race here to uh, – you're smiling. It looks like are you were enjoying watching the <laughs> conservative leadership race.
0: Just the use of the word febrile. Yes. But please, go ahead.
1: Is that, well, is that right? Yeah. It's okay, right. Uh, many people have been saying, well, this – you know, we do need a change. The next governor after yourself when when you leave next year should be more of a, a Brexit believer. Is that something you would be sympathetic to?
0: Uh, it's 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 the choice of the government to uh, decide my uh, successor, and I, it's really you know it, it's not my role at all to uh, provide input. My role is to provide a a smooth transition to uh, to that individual.
1: And would your advice be to the next person, whatever their views on Brexit or anything else, that don't worry about it being seen as that, that your role could be slightly politicised because these topics, just two that we've just discussed already. Do drag you into the, the political sphere?
0: Uh, the important thing is not to try to assess the political ramifications of doing your job, because then you become politicized. So if you're judging how certain political views will assess the everyday responsibilities of the bank, uh, whether we're managing risks, whether we're changing interest rates, then you're overthinking and you'll you'll make mistakes. And so you just have to do the analysis and 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 take what you believe to, is the right decision. And can I say another thing, which is that all of these decisions that we've been discussing are taken not by me personally, but are taken by policy committees of the Bank of England, which are on average, they're half uh, full-time employees of the Bank of England, and they're half external members. So, uh, so there's an institutional structure as well, which provides a, an objectivity and, uh, and a discipline to policymaking.
1: Are you worried that central bank independence could come under threat both here uh, either because people are just much more politics is more reactive to the role of, of central mm. bankers. We've also seen in America, President Trump attacking uh, uh, the current chair of the Federal Reserve. I mean, it seems whether one likes it or not, this is a hotter kind of seat than it was.
0: Well, there there are big strains in the, um, in the global economy and with strains comes um – it can sometimes come to tensions. Uh, I, I will say about the system here is the institutional structure that has been devised over the years is very strong because there's that accountability to parliament. That's clear, and it can sometimes be uncomfortable or tense, as you say. Um, but you know, it's right. Secondly, that there are clear objectives given to the institution. But those who take the decisions are not just one individual but are these committees and these committees that mix both full-time and, and uh, external I advice. love it when you talk
1: about committees, but I'm going to move us on if that's all right.
0: But it's uh, – it, you know, it, it's, it's painful because it's, it's easy to personalize all of this. True. Uh, and uh, we can't fit the entire committee into this room, but the entire committee...
1: They're welcome any time. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll bring them along next time. <laughs> it's a very small table. Yeah, you, <laughs> that's what I call a pledge.
0: Yeah, there you go. You have my, so you have quickly, my
1: let's have a look at the uh, UK economy. Uh, one concern that is around at the moment is that the Bank of England has been warning a tightening of monetary policy is on the horizon. But the data from the market suggests that they don't uh, believe mm. this or don't uh, believe you. Why is this disconnect there? So, it's
0: see? pretty straightforward. What we've been saying is that in the event of a smooth Brexit to some form of deal, some form of arrangement, in that event, what we would see is the economy pick up, particularly business investment, but the economy pick up, gradual building of inflationary pressures. I'd remind that inflation is at our target today, 2%, and unemployment is below 4%, lowest rate since um, Uh, The early 1970s. So you would see some uh, inflationary pressures pick up. And in that event, so there is a deal, there's a smooth transition, economy picks up, that we would tighten a bit. What the market is doing, entirely understandably, is putting a fairly heavy weight on the possibility that there won't be a deal or that there will be a very protracted period of uncertainty. And in that event, in the market's judgment, then it wouldn't be appropriate to raise interest rates. And so what you're talking about is two different scenarios to different paths for the economy. It's the policy of the current UK government, and it is the preference, express preference of both candidates to be the next prime minister for a deal. So at present, our forecast is conditioned on that. But we're able to state the obvious, which is if there's no deal, then the path of policy could well be different
1: will be different can you characterize that difference
0: it depends on the it look it will depend on the on the nature of um of no deal a sharp brexit is quite different than the scenario the economy has faced for almost half a century it's not just a hit to demand. Normally, you know, people spend less, companies invest uh, less, uh, when we've seen in various uh, recessions. But it is a shock to the supply, at least for a period of the economy. And so, you know, all the time. Would
1: that give you sleepless nights that scenario personally?
0: Well, it's a difficult. Yeah, it's a, It's an un, in many respects an unprecedented situation.
1: Let's just finish by a couple but of But sort of
0: we will, you know, we're ready for it in terms of the financial sector is ready, and we have tools to adjust in either direction as, as appropriate.
1: Uh, just a couple of c- cultural points uh, to, to finish with. I mean, one is on kind of women uh, at the top of major institutions, including uh, some you know very well Christine Lagarde, outgoing head of the International Monetary Fund, nominee for the new head of the European uh, Central Bank. Good idea?
0: She's outstanding. She's absolutely outstanding.
1: Can't say fairer than that. Yep. I wish you could uh, write my performance review. <laughs> um, <laughs> she said it was lonely uh, being a woman at the top. What are you doing to get more women to the top of big financial and economic institutions? Yeah,
0: it's hugely important. Um, What we can do first and foremost is, you know, physician, heal thyself, and which is to change uh, the Bank of England. So five, six years ago when I came, um, 17% of our senior ranks were uh, female. We set a target uh, for 35% by 2020. We're on track for that. We're at 32% now. So we've gone from 17 to 32. Now, half of our recruits, both from university and external coming in are female. That didn't just happen. There is a, you, you, a comprehensive approach to increase the diversity of the Would you like to see a female
1: successor when you leave the room? Uh, it's
0: not. I defer to the government that makes that decision. I'm, I'm really not putting my hands on the scales in any way, shape or form.
1: What's next for Mark Carney when you leave Bank of England to the end of January next year?
0: I'll leave. I'll, we'll leave the economy in good hands.
1: A rumor that you were enjoying Kylie Minogue energetically at Glastonbury over the weekend. I think not in your governor's tie and, and, and jacket at Glastonbury. Did, is that true?
0: I very much enjoyed Stormzy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I did. He was he was amazing. And um, so uh, yes, there's it was a number. very
1: provocative performance, wasn't it? it, was, it, was, it was, uh, but he was he was not kind about uh, the government and many other aspects of life in Britain.
0: Uh, well, that's look. I mean, he can speak for his uh, speak for himself, and he does speak for himself very well. And he also puts his money where his mouth is in terms of uh, uh, you know. Building a more diverse society and uh, uh, education, and, uh, but you just like the program. music. Uh, I like the music, and I like uh, you know uh, that festival. Obviously, is the pinnacle uh, in the UK. But one of the many great things in this country is just that whole world. Um, and I, I, I personally view that as something that's unique to the UK. You're but an Ardent Festival goer, I think. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> they're good. It's a you know the breadth of what happens at these things. It's not just the music, as you know. It's the food and the and the talks and the uh, the crafts and all. I mean, it's. it's the podcast, yeah. I didn't listen to any podcast while I was there. There were lots of other distractions. Uh, uh, Kylie Minogue? Uh, very good. Very good. Yeah.
1: Mark Carney, yep. thank you very much for joining us on everything from climate change to Brexit and Kylie Minogue. Thank you. We're keen to hear your thoughts on the topics we've discussed. Does climate pose the greatest risk to financial stability? What should the major institutions do about it? And for you, Is it Stormzy or Kylie? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.